As I said a moment ago, we're picking up the second part of a series this morning in Mark's Gospel. So if you turn with me in your pew Bible to Mark's Gospel, our first reading there will be from chapter 2 on page 1004. So if you have page 1004 open in front of you, that would be great. A few weeks ago, we had a momentous occasion in the modern-day history of Kirkpatrick Memorial. Uh, Real Kirkpatrick, as I like to call the the new football team uh, that has come together here in the congregation, played our first-ever match. Now, it was an event that had been building up, certainly in my mind, for weeks, probably months. And I remember thinking about this, this game uh, just in the build-up to, to that fateful Tuesday night. Uh, I had visions, obviously, of us winning the game. Um, I had visions of myself. I, I was assigned to play on the right-hand side of midfield, so I had visions of myself influencing the game, a little bit like David Beckham does when he plays for England, just a, a, very, a very strong role there and, and leading, leading the team. And, and then just whenever my dreams were carrying me away a little bit, I was dreaming of myself being carried off shoulder high after scoring a winning goal, a, a stunning volley. Now, I got one part right. I was carried off uh, at the end of that match. It's after crumpling to the ground in a heap because I had a recurrence of a, a dodgy knee that I have. That was the only part of my imaginations and of my dreamings that were right. The reality was that on that Tuesday evening down at, at the Danny Blanchfort playing field, I realized just how much I'd been dreaming. I was slow, I was unfit, and there was nothing I could do to help our team from crashing to a a disastrous defeat, I was exposed. It was the night where I came face to face with the difference between what I dreamed about myself and what I thought about myself and who I actually was. It can be a wee bit like that when we read in Mark's Gospel. When we read what Jesus has to say about us, it can be a somewhat uncomfortable experience, and I want to say that at the outset here this morning. Last week, we looked at a question. We, we asked the question, who is Jesus Christ? And we discovered that Jesus was a man with wonderful power as he preached and spoke, a man who could heal sick people, a man who could, could tell wind and waves to stop, and they did, a man who raised people from the dead. That's who we discovered Jesus Christ to be, Mark says at the beginning of his gospel, the very first verse, that Jesus is God's Son. And whenever you look at at those strands of evidence that he presents, the evidence looks pretty compelling. But there's another question I want us to ask of Jesus this morning. And that question is, why did Jesus come? If Jesus is the Son of God, what was his purpose in coming to the earth? That's what we're going to think about for a while this morning. Mark, again, is very explicit about this. He doesn't, doesn't beat around the bush. He tells us. So if you look with me at Mark chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, 
Mark will tell us there that Jesus came to rescue sinners, people who have rebelled against God and who live their lives without him. Let me read those verses. As he, that is Jesus, was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with sinners, tax collectors? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. There are two groups of people in this very, very short story that we've just read. The goodies and the baddies. The baddies are made up of people like Levi, the tax collector. Now, I don't know what your picture of a tax man is these days, but in Jesus' day, These were among the least popular people in the community. They collaborated with the occupying Roman forces. They they ripped people off and made a healthy profit out of their corruption. As I say, in general, these were among the most despised people in the community. So the baddies in this story are, are Levi and his mates, the people like him, whom he hangs around with. The goodies in the passage are the the religious leaders of the day. I suppose they're the clergy, if you like. They're the guys who are standing uh, and looking on. Now, here's a question. When God comes and lives on the earth in human form, which of these two groups of people would you expect them to spend this time with? I think intuitively we'd imagine that he'd spend his time with uh, the goodies, the clergy, that Jesus would take Mondays off to play golf with the other local ministers and catch up what's happening around the church scene. Here's the surprise. Jesus doesn't seem to spend a lot of time with the goodies. In fact, that's the crux of what's going on here. Jesus says it's not the healthy people who need help, who need a doctor. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. In effect, Jesus is saying, I've come for them, for the baddies. I can heal you, Jesus Christ says, and he says it today. He says, I can heal you if you understand that you need to be healed. If you don't think you need a cure, then I'm no use to you. I'm about as much use to you as somebody who is healthy, and, and uh, you need me about as much as they need a doctor. There's a, a massive irony here. I think, you know, despite what most of us think, coming along to Jesus Christ, and I would say the same about the church, coming to church is not a case of how good you are. That's not the qualification. The qualification is, are you bad enough? Are you, are you willing to admit that, that you're bad. That's the only qualification that there is for being taken seriously by Jesus Christ. Slowly, there's an answer emerging to the question I 
I, I put to us at the start, why did Jesus come to earth? If you ask Jesus that question, he would say that he had come to save sinners. He'd come to take people who who'd rebelled against God to bring them back, back into a loving relationship with God. Now, Jesus makes an assumption that some of us here this morning probably won't be comfortable with. And the assumption is this, we're all in this boat. We're all rebels in this sense. Even if we think that we're basically good, many people in Ulster think that they're basically good. I know this because I've visited in hundreds of homes in three different large communities uh, in different parts of Ulster in my role as a minister. And whenever I speak to people in those homes about God and about their relationship with God, I get, I get very similar sort of answers. Some will say, oh, my parents brought me up to know right from wrong. I, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than a lot of other people. I try to live a good life. Not perfect, but I'm a good person. Most people believe that they're basically good. And now there's an obvious question here. If the world were full of people who were basically good, why would the world be the way we find it now when we watch our six o'clock news? Why is it that we live in a province where children are abused, where pensioners are robbed, where foreign nationals are terrorized on their way home from work? Why is it that closer to home, we can't keep our relationships together? Why is it that our families are falling apart? Why is all that happening if people really are basically good? Friends, I want to tell you that I think the culture of modern-day Britain is built on a lie. It's a lie that intellectuals would probably call secular humanism, but it basically means this, that people are basically good. And that if you leave them to it long enough, all the good's going to come to the surface. And if you add a little bit of technology and advances in education, people are going to work out okay. That's what our culture tells itself, that we are basically good. Friends, it's complete nonsense. And it's dangerous nonsense. John Gray is the professor of European thought at the London School of Economics. This man is most certainly not a Christian. But he's got to the stage where he's seeing through this secular humanism. In a recent study, he revealed that he believes in sin. He believes that history itself confirms the existence of sin. He argues that the human animal is intrinsically flawed and that no amount of education or technology will ever change that. I, I believe that we only need to look at our world to see that he's right. And I wonder if you're, you're at a point where where that admission is, is one that you'd be willing to make. Friends, this is why Jesus came. He came to save rebels 
we're all rebels. Maybe you're still not convinced. Maybe you see a group of people out there who, yes, who yes are bad, who, who are these rebels that I'm talking about, but you're not one of them. You don't hurt children. You don't steal. You're still convinced that you're good. Well, imagine for a moment that the organ pipes there were replaced with a screen, cinema-sized screen. And imagine, instead of showing a film, that on the screen we had a running tape, a bit like a Big Brother type thing, something that follows you around 24 hours a day, shows everything that you do, even when nobody's looking, shows everything that you say, even just at home where you think you can get away with it. But worse than that, this this technology is able to to show your thoughts, uh, what you think about people in your workplace, and in your family, and people here. Would you be happy for the rest of us to watch that? I know I'd be terrified, absolutely terrified. Now, why is that? If we're good people, surely, you know, let it roll. We should be willing to to let people see exactly what's going on in our lives from our very thoughts outwards. Why is it that we have so much to be ashamed of? Well, Jesus tackles this in in Mark chapter 7. So if you turn a few pages to Mark chapter 7, we'll find an answer there. Verses 18 to 23. There's a really interesting thing going on here. The, The Pharisees, the religious guys, are getting upset because they discovered that Jesus' disciples were eating food without having washed their hands. Now, nowadays, we'd be upset by that from a hygiene point of view, but that's not the issue here, okay? This is a spiritual issue. For these guys, if you eat food without washing your hands, it makes you unclean before God. It's like sinful, it's wrong. So these, these Pharisees are coming to Jesus and asking why his disciples aren't washing their hands. They think that being right with God is all about the outside stuff. Whether you wash your hands, the places you go, all that sort of stuff. And this is where Jesus now comes in. Look at verse 18. He says, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but his stomach, and then out of his body. He went on. What comes out of a man or a woman is what makes them unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander. All these evils come from inside and make a man or a woman unclean. Jesus says, forget about whether you're washing your hands. I think in the modern context, he'd say, forget about whether people take a drink or whether they smoke. That's not what makes people unclean. It's what comes from the inside. It's who we are on the inside that Jesus is most concerned about. Jesus says the biggest problem that we face is is our hearts. Not not the, the pump that sends blood around our bodies. In in Jesus' time, when they talked about the heart, they meant the real you, the seat of your personality, your 
your driving force, your inner being. That's where Jesus says we're in trouble. Why is it so hard to keep our relationships good? Why do we hurt people whom we love the most? Why do we find that they hurt us? It's because altogether we we're sick. We have a problem in our hearts. Friends, what makes this so serious is that we don't just mistreat each other. We, just, we don't just hurt each other and let each other down. We do the same with God too. Look with me at Mark chapter 12. Mark 12. We look there at verses 28 to 31. Here Jesus again, he's debating with these religious leaders. If you read the Gospels, Jesus is always going toe-to-toe with these guys. And the the question here, one of the teachers of the law came and he heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Okay, this is a trick question. What the guy here is trying to do is he's trying to, to trick Jesus into giving the wrong answer, to create a bit of controversy and to discredit him. But we learned last week, probably Jesus is not the person you want to try and do that with because he's the wisest and the best teacher that the world's ever seen. So look at Jesus' answer. What's the most important commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Did you notice that word all? Love God with all of these things. What Jesus is saying here is that no part of our life should be cordoned off from God. I think this is how some of us, some of us live. We, we have different parts to our life. There's the churchy, gaudy Sunday bit, but the rest is a place where I'm king and I do what I want. Jesus says, no, no, all, absolutely every part of your life is to be lived loving God. Jesus says this is the biggest commandment. This is the most important thing in life. Now here we have a choice to make. Do you believe Jesus or do you believe Whitney Houston? Whitney Houston sang a song in the late 1980s called The Greatest Love of All. It included the lyric, learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. And you might smile and laugh. Don't know what you thought of that song. Can I tell you that that is the mantra of our culture? Can I tell you that that's what Britain is living on these days? If you go to any counselor or self-help guy, that's what they'll tell you. If you have problems in your life, you just need to learn to love yourself. Whitney Houston or Jesus? Who's got it right? Friends, can I ask you? Maybe I'm wrong here, but I think we live in the most selfish Britain there's ever been. I don't know if people have ever given more time and more energy to loving themselves. And has that helped? Is that answering our problems? Has that made Britain a better place to live? 
I suspect that it's done the opposite. You see, the, the danger here is that whenever we turn into to loving ourselves, we turn our backs on the very thing that Jesus says is most important, loving God. That's what we were made for. Don't misunderstand me here. If you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you will love yourself. But you'll do it in an appropriate way, understanding who you really are, who God made you to be. Instead, whenever we we try to love ourselves without reference to God, we live as though we were God, as though we were the highest authority in the world, as though we could decide absolutely everything for ourselves without reference to anyone else. Friends, when we ignore, I'm sure you know, whenever you ignore friends, or if you're married, if you ignore your spouse, and you mess with that relationship, there are always consequences. The same is true in our relationship with God. We can't, we can't mess about with this relationship with God and expect that there wouldn't be some consequences. This brings me to, to pretty much the last point I want to make this morning. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Verses 42 and 40, sorry, 43 to 48. Jesus is talking here about the consequences of not keeping that first commandment first, of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. At verse 43, Jesus tells us we're in serious danger and he warns us just how serious our sin is. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Friends, because of our sin, we're in terrible danger. We're in danger of hell. And the Bible says that hell is a place where for all eternity people will be abandoned from God and they'll experience suffering and punishment. And it's a place where people will go if they die still rebelling against their creator. I need you to understand something here. Jesus Christ is the most loving person who ever walked on the earth. The words of Jesus are the most loving words you'll ever hear. And yet here Jesus Christ warns you about hell. You see, we live in a time where people would say, if you love people, you wouldn't mention hell. You'd leave that out. That's too uncomfortable. But friends, if hell's real and hell exists, then the person who loves you will be the person who warns you about it. The person who tells you about it that you need not go there. That's the person who loves you. According to Jesus, hell's real, and it's a place that we want to avoid at all costs. That passage, by the way, I don't think Jesus means that, that 
we should be expecting to see people with only one hand or who have plucked out an eye. That's not where Jesus is coming from at all. Jesus is trying to say, whatever you do, resolve this in your life. If there's sin in your life, resolve it. And he goes to extremes to illustrate how important this is. Now here's our problem, okay? Our sin doesn't reside, as we've said, in our hand or in our eyes. Because if it did, we could isolate those, chop them off, and we'd be fine. Where is it we said our sin resides? It resides in our heart. It's in our very inner nature. It's in who we are. We can't do anything about that. We can't cut out our own hearts. Friends, I'm finished here. We're sick. Every one of us here is sick, and we need help. We need heart surgery. And only Jesus can do this for us. Why did Jesus Christ come to the earth? I've come, says Jesus, to save sinners. I've come for those who are sick and who know they're sick. And I've come for those who have realized that only I can heal them. And when they do that, I will do that. I will heal them. I'll make them right. I'll heal them not in their eyes or their hands or their feet, but I'll heal them in their hearts. Friends, that's why Jesus came. As I did last week, I'm going to close with a prayer, but before I pray that prayer, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what it's going to be. I'm going to tell you so that you can listen to it first, and see if this is a prayer that you could pray. It's a prayer really for people who don't yet get this, who haven't yet accepted Jesus Christ and who aren't yet following him, but but are beginning to wonder as they listen to God's word here whether this might not be important for them. Let Let me read it to you first. Thank you, Jesus, for telling me the truth about who I am. Thank you for warning me that I'm in danger of facing hell. Thank you that because you love me, you came to heal sick sinners like me. And thank you for promising that you will do that, that you'll heal me if only I let you. Keep speaking to me through Mark's gospel and help me to respond to you. If that's a prayer that, that makes sense for you, I would ask you to, to just bow your head and, and close your eyes and, and pray it along with me as I pray it now. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for telling me the truth about who I am. Thank you that you love me enough to warn me that I'm facing the danger of hell. Thank you that you came for sick sinners like me. 
Thank you for promising to heal me. If only I'll let you. Keep speaking to me through Mark's gospel and help me to respond to you. Amen. I'm conscious that as we look at these passages from Mark's gospel and as we listen intently to what Jesus said, I'm conscious that 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 might really be hitting home to some people here. If, If you want to talk about that, if you if you have questions or, or you're just not sure how to proceed from here, come and speak to me about that. I'd be only too glad to, to help you, to point you to, to other places where you could have help. But don't, as Jesus said in his illustration of the plucking out the eye and chopping off the hand, don't leave this stuff without giving it your utmost serious attention.